Hello and welcome to this week's Lancet podcast. I'm Rona MacDonald and I'm filling in for Richard Lane this week as he's on holiday. This week's Lancet is another packed issue as usual and we publish a type of study that we don't often do, a genome-wide association study and I'll be talking to the lead author of that paper, Dr Manjinder Sandhu, a little later on. So what other studies do we have this week? Well, we publish one on the controversial drug aprotonin. Now, aprotonin is a serine protease inhibitor and previous randomised controlled trials have shown that although this drug reduces bleeding and the need for blood transfusion during cardiac surgery, it may also be associated with renal failure. So following advice from the Commission on Human Medicines, Bayer PLC, which is the product licence holder for this drug, voluntarily suspended worldwide marketing of aprotonin following preliminary findings of a Canadian study last year, which suggested that it may also increase mortality. So in this week's study, Professor Zai Zakharowski and Dr. Ranel Moulton from Bristol Royal Infirmary and colleagues did a retrospective study on the effect of aprotonin on renal dysfunction, and they looked specifically at the on-pump versus off-pump cardiac surgery and co-medication with ACE inhibitors. The analysis included almost 10,000 patients undergoing cardiac surgery over a seven-year period. And their findings are very interesting. They show that in the patients undergoing on-pump surgery, the association between aprotonin and post-operative renal dysfunction was not significant irrespective of the use of ACE inhibitors. However, in the patients taking ACE inhibitors and undergoing off-pump cardiac surgery, aprotonin was associated with an almost two-fold increase in the risk of renal dysfunction. The authors conclude that international communities of cardiac anaesthesia and surgery face controversy regarding the use of aprotonin. For example, in the UK, the Commission on Human Medicines is awaiting the decision of the European Commission, which is undertaking a full review for the risks and benefits of aprotonin. In this study, the authors recorded little association between the use of aprotonin and the occurrence of renal dysfunction in patients undergoing on-pump cardiac surgery, irrespective of ACE inhibitor use. In an accompanying comment, Dr Derek Housenloy from the University College London says that while waiting for the results of the BART analysis, which will analyse 64 randomised trials, the use of aprotonin in the US and in some European countries has been necessarily restricted, with the consequence that some high-risk patients receiving cardiac surgery, with the consequence that some high-risk patients having cardiac surgery might not receive optimum therapy. And as part of our ongoing series on undernutrition, we publish a study from Nepal which shows that children born to mothers given multiple micronutrient supplementation are bigger and heavier than those born to mothers given iron and folic acid supplementation alone. Furthermore, these effects extend for the first three years of children's lives. The authors, David Orson from the Institute of Child Health in London and colleagues from the Mother and Infant Research Activities in Kathmandu, Nepal, conclude in a poor population, the effects of maternal multiple micronutrient supplementation on the fetus persists into childhood with increases in both weight and body size. These increases were small, however, since children exposed to micronutrients had an average of 2% higher weight than controls. So the authors conclude that the public health implications of changes in weight and blood pressure need to be clarified through follow-up. We also publish a very interesting seminar which shows that the spread of flaviviruses, mosquito or tick-borne viruses that can be transmitted to humans and other mammals, is driven primarily by human activity and may in the future be further fueled by climate change. Dr Ernest Gould from Oxford and Professor Tom Solomon from Liverpool used examples of the disease caused by viruses, which include West Nile fever, yellow fever, dengue, Japanese encephalitis and Omsk hemorrhagic fever. 
The authors say that although the characteristics of these viruses are well defined, they are still unpredictable, with increases in disease severity, unusual clinical manifestations, unexpected methods of transmission, long-term persistence and the discovery of new species. For most of these viruses, control is difficult because many hosts and vectors are involved. The authors conclude, with increasing temperatures worldwide, movement of people, increased human population densities, wider dispersal of component mosquitoes or ticks, and transportation of goods, animals and agricultural products, the continuing spread of these arboviruses into new regions seems probable. Furthermore, they say we should expect increasing numbers of epidemics due to recognised flaviviruses such as West Nile virus in southern Europe, and perhaps eventually in northern Europe. Furthermore, Japanese encephalitis could spread further west. And now to the study I was talking about earlier, the discovery of a new gene locus associated with LDL cholesterol. I'm now joined by Dr. Madinder Sandhu, who's a lecturer in epidemiology at the University of Cambridge. And we published a study by him and his colleagues this week, which is a genome-wide association study. Now, The Lancet doesn't publish many of them, so Majinder, do you mind to start with explaining a bit more what genome-wide studies, association studies are? Sure. Well, okay. Generally, in population research and genetic studies of human populations, researchers generally look at the association between genes, specific genes, and perhaps human traits such as cholesterol levels or, or disease such as coronary artery disease. What we've tried to do here is, is take a, a series of populations and for each individual person, we've tried to characterize their genetic information across the whole genome, i.e. take into account all chromosomes within an individual's genome and assessing that association between the genetic variation and subsequent changes in their LDL levels. But how did you do that? <laughs> we used a new technology which uses which takes information on an individual, takes a, a DNA sample from each individual, and actually measures changes across their DNA at specific points. And these are the single nucleotide polymorphisms. So basically, DNA is composed of nucleotide base pairs, molecules, and for each base pair, sometimes individuals have a change, i.e. it's a four-letter code, so ATCG, and individuals can either be A at a specific point in their genome or a T. And if you see that difference amongst people, one would call that a, a point change, a polymorphic change, a single nucleotide polymorphism change. And so we characterized hundreds and thousands of variation across an individual's genome and examined that variation against variation in circulating levels of cholesterol. And where you see various signals for genetic information and changes in cholesterol, one can conclude that this genetic region is actually associated with variation in cholesterols and therefore may be important in the regulation of cholesterol. Okay, well that helps, thank you. But to get to the specifics of your actual study, you combined five studies, is that right? That's correct. What we decided to do was to increase statistical efficiency, so our ability to, de to detect a statistical association, we opted to look at five separate populations. These were taken from the UK and also from Switzerland. And it amounted to a total of just over 11,500 individuals. And for these individuals, we had detailed genetic information on nearly 300,000 single nucleotide polymorphisms, and we also measured cholesterol in these individuals. Okay, so what exactly did you find? Well, interestingly, when we examined the association between variation across the genome and variation in circulating levels of LDL cholesterol, we found that 
Although we characterized well-established genetic regulators of LDL cholesterol, including the LDL receptor gene, which has been linked to familial hypercholesterolemia, we also found new regions that had previously not been identified as important in LDL cholesterol regulation. In particular, we found a region on chromosome 1, which we found very strong statistical evidence for association, which we also found in other populations when we subsequently tested for this association in replication populations. So this is this chromosome locus LP13.3, is that how you pronounce it? It's 1P13.3 and basically that's just a coding to tell you roughly where it is on chromosome 1. And obviously there's more detailed characterization of its position in our paper. But basically that, that chromo, chromosome is just a positioning nomenclature for, for that particular region. And how certain can, can you be about this? Obviously this was a massive study, but... Are you sure that this chromosome is now associated or is it just very likely? We're pretty certain. Obviously, we did a study in over 11,500 people and we conducted independent replication in two populations. However, in parallel to our publication, three other groups have independently shown that this locus, using similar-sized populations, have also shown that this locus is indeed associated with LDL cholesterol. And so the, the, the statistical evidence for a link between this genetic region and LDL cholesterol is, is exceptionally strong. So we're pretty certain there is a, an association there. What we don't know is what the mechanisms underlying this association Okay, so as I said initially, it's quite unusual for The Lancet to publish genome-wide association studies like this because obviously most of our studies are, are clinically based. So what's the clinical implications for your study? Well, potentially there's several. Clearly this is this is a initial association study which has been replicated by several independent groups finding clear evidence for a novel series of genes that may be implicated in LDL regulation. Now, if we understand how LDL is regulated, we can potentially develop additional therapeutic targets for the treatment of conditions where cholesterol may be linked to higher risk of cardiovascular disease, for example. So there's a, there's a real strong clinical impact. Also, when we look at familial hypercholesterolemia, i.e. a condition that is linked to families and is associated with very high cholesterol and very high risk of coronary artery disease, one may be able to, in a proportion of those individuals, there's no known mutation. So we don't know why these families have very high levels of, of cholesterol and, and it may be linked to, to this new region. So one of the possibilities of future research, in, in, in particular for, for, the, for this study, is that we can actually now examine whether mutations that cause deleterious changes in this gene might be linked to familial hypercholesterolemia also. This is clearly tentative, but it's something that the scientific community needs to pursue and that may have impact in terms of how these people may be treated. So is this what you're going on to do now? Is this what you're Indeed, so we're going to link in with collaborators and population cohorts that are examining familial hypercholesterolemia patients and examine whether some of these individuals may have mutations in these genes. Thank you, that's very interesting. Before you go, if you don't mind, I just want to ask you a bit more about genome-wide association studies because they have become so prevalent now and there's a lot of funding for them. What do you think the way forward is for these studies? Obviously they need to be narrowed down as much as possible as you've done in your study and there needs to be some clinical implications but what do you see happening with them in the future? Currently there has been a a plethora of genome-wide association studies and I think in short they have been successful. They have shown through recent research and published research in very high-profile scientific journals that there are 
new genetic determinants of diseases that may provide clear insights into the etiology or the biology underlying these diseases, which could lead towards better treatments. So they are successful. The question remains is, well, what do we do subsequently in terms of we found these initial associations, that they're robust, they appear to be consistent across populations. What what we can do then? And I think the real push for for genome-wide associations and subsequent studies is to really understand what are the mechanisms underlying these associations. So really to kind of get down to to the locus that is generating the association signal and try to understand what specific variants or genetic changes are responsible for these changes in the phenotype or, or, the, or the disease trait that, that is of interest. And what, if we can do that, then we can make a statement about a causal link between this genetic association and risk of disease or variation in, in a metabolic trait such as cholesterol. And I think that'll be the, the next stage for genome-wide association studies, how we can push that forward into really understanding the cause of, of these associations. Sounds exciting stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, I just want to point to two of our editorials this week. Journals like The Lancet would not survive if not for the hard work and dedication of our peer reviewers. Peer review is not only a private matter between a particular journal and a reviewer, it also relies on trust between the two parties. In our long leader this week, we discuss how these activities has much wider consequence. Without peer reviewers, the whole edifice of scientific research and publication would have no foundation. Yet peer review is not given the academic kudos it deserves. Institutions do not routinely make it part of their appraisal processes. Furthermore, in a recent survey, 91% of over 3,000 researchers said that they reviewed altruistically to play their part as a member of the academic community. We think that this important commitment deserves to be better recognised and rewarded, and it needs to be part of the education of every researcher. So why are we bringing this up this week? Well, it's down to an incident involving the reviewer of a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, where unfortunately this reviewer leaked the contents of a paper to a drug company and we discuss this and its wider implications in this week's long leader. And finally I want to highlight our short editorial about keeping hospitals safe from all types of disaster. Last week WHO launched a hospital safe from disaster campaign however they only looked at natural disasters and although this campaign is of course worthy and important there is another type of disaster that is equally or even more disruptive conflict between or within nations. In many countries affected by enduring and armed conflict, hospitals and health workers have come under fire. For example, in Iraq, around 7% of hospitals were damaged in the initial invasion and 12% were looted. Coalition forces also disrupted health services by occupying Fallujah General Hospital during military operations in 2004. And last year, Iraqi soldiers assaulted staff at a Baghdad hospital, serving many Sunni Muslims. And according to a recent report from the charity Oxfam, 21 health clinics have had to close in Afghanistan's Helmand province because of the precarious security situation. And in the ongoing fighting in Somalia, health workers have been targeted and killed. These occurrences are a serious breach of the Geneva Convention, which states that civilian hospitals should not be attacked during conflict and that health workers should be allowed to continue their duties. We believe that the Hospital Safe from Disasters campaign should therefore widen its scope and advocate for international obligations protecting health facilities and health workers to be respected at all times. Hospitals and their staff are vital lifelines and should be protected against forces of nature during peacetime and from armed forces during times of conflict. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and Richard Lane will be joining you again next week. So that's me, Rona MacDonald, saying bye for now.